Welcome to the Underground Christian Podcast, the sensible Christian resource to help us see the world as it really is, as God sees it, so we can know what to do with it. We live in a world of appearances, where what we see is not always what we get. Or, to put it more accurately, what we're told is true is not always what is true, which is kind of like a lie. And that's exactly what we should expect from a world that's run by Satan. We should expect that that world will reflect something of his character, which might be why virtue and justice sometimes seem in short supply. And what are those character traits? Well, he's an accomplished liar, a thief, and a murderer, according to the Bible. So let's start with the first one and see if the world reflects that characteristic. When people lie, they know they're lying, and they do it to achieve an outcome they desire. And just like those little mousies that get their reward in the lab experiments, The more a person achieves his or her desired outcomes by telling lies, the more likely that person is to lie again in the future. It's kind of like a training system where positive feedback reinforces the behavior. Oftentimes, liars get away with their lies because the people they lie to love the lie more than they love the truth. We tend to lie to ourselves all the time. We justify in our minds doing things we know are wrong because we love the outcome more than we love the truth that it's wrong. If we can justify lying to ourselves, then how much easier is it to justify lying to others to get what we want? That's the point of 2 Thessalonians 2, 9-12, where the Apostle Paul warns us that this kind of thinking is not going to end very well. He puts the warning in the context of a really bad time period that's still in the future. He says, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they and all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Yes, this is prophecy, and I know there are lots of people out there who don't like prophecy. It scares some of them, and the bickering about timing annoys a lot of others. And sometimes good Christians become disillusioned about prophecy because they hear someone predict something that doesn't come true. Predicting things you have no business predicting is kind of like lying, and we have a natural revulsion towards liars and their lies. We need to learn some prophecy, though, because God didn't fill 30% of the Bible with it just so we can pretend it's not there. Christians are supposed to do something with a prophecy. So let's take this one little passage and see what a former intelligence analyst turned geologist can do with it. Paul is talking about the lawless one, who was helpfully associated with Satan. The Bible tags him with many names in other places, including the man of sin, the man of perdition, and the name that everybody knows, the Antichrist. So we know he's a man, and he has power because it says he comes with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Now, power in this case means governing authority, although it's not really clear from just this passage that that's what it means, but that's what it means. The other Bible passages make that clear. So, he has a lot of governing power, and in fact, he has so much, he's a tyrant. Signs in the Bible are things that authenticate one's authority and are often unexpected natural events. Wonders are miracles that demonstrate a person's authority came from God. The lying part means that the miracles are not from the real God, but from an imposter, namely Satan. So, the lawless one is a real man who will wield absolute political authority that's given to him by Satan and not by God and he'll demonstrate his power and authority using miraculous or nearly miraculous exhibitions of his power. He will rule the world, and the world will come to love him. Contrary to popular podcast accusations, the lawless one is not Trump, or Obama, 
or Putin or the Pope, each of whom have been elected to the post by some people. It can't be any of them or any other world leader because the Antichrist is not going to be a legitimate ruler according to Daniel 11.21, which says, And in his place shall arise a vile person, another descriptive name of the Antichrist, to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. So he comes into the world of the political elites and then seizes the kingdom, which today we might call the New World Order or something like that. He will seize it by intrigue, which means that he will use deceptive lies to fool people, possibly accompanied by violence. Now, the Antichrist hasn't happened yet because no one has fulfilled 2 Thessalonians 2.4, if you care to go look it up, so it must still be in the future. Of course, that hasn't prevented people in the past from thinking that maybe their pet dictator was the Antichrist. People like Genghis Khan, Napoleon, Lenin, Hitler, and some others certainly made life miserable enough to almost qualify as a man of perdition, but they were not the real one, and their savage acts of governance were just foreshadows of what the real Antichrist is going to be like. It gives us all something to look forward to. Going even further back in time, the Bible lists some other forerunners of Antichrist. Men like Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who wiped out Israel, Judea, well, I think Israel was already gone, Judea, and the temple. Cyrus, the king of Medo-Persia, who wiped out Babylon. Alexander the Great, the king of Greece, who wiped out Medo-Persia. And the mystery ruler of the next empire, which most people think is Rome, but I really don't. So the lawless one was preceded by numerous lesser, but still really bad lawless ones, who conquered their part of the world, but not the whole planet. We should mention that the word lawless here does not mean lawless in the sense of anarchists who ignore human law. It means acting as if God doesn't exist by ignoring the laws of God, which are the ones that really count. So what do all of these terrible men have in common, other than they're men and they were despotic dictators and they had delusions of grandeur? Well, one thing is they were all murderous killers, almost like it was a requirement for the position. They were also thieves who took the property of the people they killed. They were also liars who used bold, brazen lies to enslave and control their own people and those they conquered. These forerunners to the Antichrist thought that lying was a small thing morally and even worthy if it was practiced to achieve a desirable end. They were lying, thieving, murderous men, and the lawless one will be worse than all of them, combined. But he's not arrived yet, so one thing we can know for sure is that it will take place in the future which means the Antichrist is going to be part of a modern technological civilization. At that time, he will speak lies to deceive people, and it's going to work great for one very specific reason. Going back to the Bible passage, it says the lawless one works all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they, meaning the people who perish, did not receive the love of the truth. His deceptions are going to work great, because the people who are deceived won't love the truth. What truth? The truth is the truth of God's revelation that is presented in the Bible, but it also means truth in general. The people who listen to him won't like reality very much, so they're going to be open to hearing him spin a yarn. For this reason, the Bible says, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they and all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The people who take pleasure in unrighteousness are going to be judged by God, judgment meaning punishment. God's judgment will come in the form of a strong delusion. This particular delusion seems to be different from all the other common delusions that people entertain so they can enjoy their favorite sins. 
and it's going to be initiated by the lie, which has a definite article. So the lawless one is going to tell the big whopper lie that will ultimately condemn all of his followers to eternal punishment. And why will they believe the big whopper lie? Because of that strong delusion, which is identified in another scripture, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3-4. That day will not come, it says, unless the man of sin is revealed, that's another name for him, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And that is the big lie, that a man can be God other than Jesus. It will be one really spectacular delusion, but it will be preceded by lesser but still impressive delusions to create an environment for the final delusion at the end. Delusions are lies about reality that people believe because they hate the truth of reality. The last thing deluded people want is for a do-gooder truther to come along and tell them what the truth is. They really hate that. In fact, one of the signs that the end times are getting really close are the number and severity of the delusions the members of the world suffer. So let's take a peek at some common delusions that would not have been believed even a few short years ago. Let's start at the most basic level. God made man and woman. That's a binary. He made a couple. Today, we don't speak in such insensitive terms because there are like literally thousands of genders, literally. There are so many that we have to ask people which gender they are, or we'll be accused of misgendering them, and no one wants to be accused of misgenderism. That's why we have the option of leaving gender blank on our little baby's birth certificates so that we can wait to ask them what they are. Do you think that's delusional? It would have been considered so barely just five years ago. Then there's this guy in government named Sam Brinton. You're going to love this story, which comes right from the National Pulse, so I didn't make it up. Sam recently landed a really sweet position as the Assistant Secretary of Spent Fuel and Waste Deposition in the Office of Nuclear Energy for the Department of Energy. You've got to be really smart just to remember that title. Sam also answers to the name of Sister Ray Dioactive. (laughs) Clever, right? Well, Mr. Britton is a man of the times, and he has his own website with a bio that says in part, Sam has warned his stilettos to Congress to advise legislators about nuclear policy and to the White House, where he advised President Obama and Michelle Obama on LGBT issues. So he fills two roles. But there's much more to Sam than just a great pair of shoes and a cool name. His choice of off-duty entertainment venues is the Washington, D.C. chapter of a drag queen society known as the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. At this society... He is a member in such good standing that he has acted twice as their personal reference for tax matters. During the group's lavender mass of 2021, he referred to Anthony Fauci as a saint and Daddy Fauci. But he can't truly relax until he gets to spend some quality time with his boyfriend playing pup handler. Uh, Yeah, he does. An article in Metro Weekly has a picture of him in leather pants and no shirt holding a leather leash that's tied to his boyfriend's leather collar. The boyfriend is on four paws in a leather dog face mask, leather dog suit, and leather doggy gloves. Sam tells the interviewer, and excuse me, but I have to bleep a few parts here, quote, I actually have trouble when we transition from pup play to having bleep. Like, no, I can't have you whimper like that when we're having bleep because I don't want to mix that world. 
He doesn't have to come out of his pup mode to have me bleep him. I personally have to bring him out of pup perception for me. But wait, because it gets even better. Sam has also lectured at college campuses, including a class for the Stout Gender and Sexuality Alliance at the University of Wisconsin in 2018. The topic? The Physics of Kink. The Instagram description said the session was to include live demos on the tension forces of bondage, thermodynamics of wax play, physics of impact, and circuits of electroplay. Yes, this man of the world was personally appointed to his government position of Assistant Secretary of Waste by President Joe Biden. But delusion does not stop at the White House. Just a few short years ago, no one would have believed that the government would deify an openly communist organization like BLM and an openly anarchist organization like Antifa and not only allow them to riot across America for months, burning and looting and pillaging and assaulting and once or twice killing, all while defunding the police. No one would have believed it. No one would believe that prosecutors would stop prosecuting criminals and start prosecuting police and work with government to let violent young offenders out of prison early, not just because. No one would have believed that government could unilaterally terminate our civil rights and erase our constitutional protections over a virus that's no more dangerous than a bad flu. No one would have believed that the government would declare an experimental drug that's not even completed its phase 3 trial to be declared safe and effective based on a token data set entirely controlled by the drug company. No one would believe that government would force said experimental drug on the populace even when the law says it cannot and should not do that. No one would believe that in a democratic country, if you, I'm not talking about America, but it might be America soon, if you try to buy food without wearing a face diaper or fail to present your papers like they used to do in Nazi Germany, then you would be considered an insurrectionist who should be fined, imprisoned, or both. No one would have believed the democratic world would be so quickly infested with would-be despots at every governmental level, from school boards and attorneys general to local, state, and federal elected officials, and seemingly with no way to get rid of them. Yet the people who act like despots by making illegal proclamations seem utterly fearless in the face of any consequences. They do and say as they please, regardless of the truth, as if the people of America and the world don't matter at all. But at the same time, there's an undercurrent of nervousness among some of them. Did you notice, for example, the really pretty concrete blast wall that has been recently erected around the White House? The one with gun ports every 50 feet or so? I guess the army of National Guardsmen armed to the teeth, having strung miles of concertina wire around the Capitol, wasn't enough security for the Politburo elites. They apparently don't feel safe merely controlling the world's most powerful military, coupled with their own personal police force, backed by scores of federal agencies with budding Gestapo agents who are willing and ready to intimidate any little person who gets in the government's way. As President Biden said to us little people not too long ago, you don't have your own F-35s or F-16s or whatever it is he said. Yet despite our lack of air power, Joe apparently does not feel secure enough in a house equipped with a reinforced concrete and steel bunker underneath it, ringed with security fencing and protected by armed guards, dogs, and sharpshooters. Nope. He also needed to build a brand new blast wall to hold back the angry peasants long enough to flee into his underground bunker and escape through a tunnel to the nearest dumb. Oh, and what is a dumb? Well, I'm glad you asked. 
Here at Underground Christian, we like to provide critical information about things like dumbs so that you can feel more relaxed knowing how well the political elites spend your hard-earned tax money. DUMB stands for Deep Underground Military Base. Most people are somewhat familiar with the massive Cheyenne Mountain Underground Military Complex near Boulder, Colorado. It wasn't called a dumb when it was built, but that's because they hadn't invented the term yet. The Colorado version was home to the North American Aerospace Defense Command, the U.S. Strategic Command, the U.S. Air Force Space Command, and the U.S. Northern Command, which gives you an idea that it was the place to be if you wanted to be in command. The facility is constructed beneath 2,000 feet of solid granite bedrock with access to the inside only through a long tunnel that's protected by a series of 25-ton blast doors. While it's a bit obsolete by today's standards, it was designed to withstand a 30-megaton nuclear warhead that detonates only one mile away. That was pretty close back in the day. For comparison, the bomb that wiped out Hiroshima was only about 0.015 megatons in size. So this facility was designed to survive a bomb that was 2,000 times more powerful than Hiroshima. The complex contains 15 massive three-story buildings that are built on giant springs to keep the buildings from moving more than one inch during a nearby nuclear blast or a really big earthquake. Since it's an artifact of yesteryear, the government opened it up to the press and agreed to let them do some interior filming as a nod to nostalgia. So if you have the time, feel free to take a virtual tour of the underground complex on the YouTube. The government is not too concerned about you and Vladimir Putin seeing what's in there, because there are lots more dumbs in America, most of which are way more sophisticated than that old dump. Current estimates put the number at upwards of 150, with each one costing billions of dollars that your hard-earned money paid for. Hey, thanks very much. Another famous, if less visited, dumb is Raven Rock Mountain Complex in western Pennsylvania. It's also called the Underground Pentagon. Not too much is known publicly about it, other than it houses a very elaborate communication center, as well as all kinds of dubious cloak-and-dagger operative types. Unofficially, it's the place where the architects of a future Armageddon will be able to safely hang out while they implement their sinister schemes. Just don't try to get too close to it, at least if you want to be breathing next week. The guardians of these military safe spaces don't appreciate strangers, and they don't have to play nice with them either, unlike those of us who live in blue states that don't have a hold-your-ground law, but do have plenty of oppressive Democrats who want to legalize thuggery and eliminate firearms from the law-abiding citizen. They don't really care about our safety, maybe in part because they'll be able to hide out in the nearest dumb when things go south. When these important government people flee underground, they will have access to the very best a giant underground city can provide. They will have shopping centers, malls, restaurants, and hair salons. It's also rumored that there may be an elaborate underground highway system connecting key dumbs. Highways will be handy to move around the unbelievable amount of cargo and workers that will be needed to properly service the needs of the underground elite. It's also real convenient if you want to move military assets from this place to that place without any fear of detection. Whether this underground highway system really exists or not, there's no question that the government has built many dumbs. There is even evidence that some foreign countries have gotten in on the dumb building spree, making me wonder if all these government leaders are expecting something that we little people don't know about. Which brings us to the high and mighty of the corporate world. You didn't think they'd be left out of this underground building spree, did you? The billionaires have had their own version of dumbs for some time, often on secluded islands or in some other remote location. They aren't so much the kind of bunkers that you and I might use, but more like reinforced extensions of the mansions of they live in that go beneath the earth. Recently, however, there's been a strong demand for underground living spaces by the merely filthy rich. In an August 2019 article in CNN Style, Elizabeth Stamp wrote, 
many of the world's elite, including hedge fund managers, sports stars, and tech executives, have chosen to design their own secret shelters to house their families and staff. Bill Gates is rumored to have bunkers at all his properties. Vivio's X-Point is near the Black Hills of South Dakota. It's a company. It consists of 575 military bunkers that served as an army munitions depot until 1967. Presently being converted into a facility that will accommodate about 5,000 people, the interiors of each bunker are outfitted by the owners at a cost of between $25,000 to $200,000 each. I believe that's the cost of outfitting them, you know, with the things they want, not the cost of the bunkers. The price depends on whether they want a minimalist space or a home with high-end finishes. The compound itself will be equipped with all the comforts of a small town, including a community theater, classrooms, hydroponic gardens, a medical clinic, a spa, and a gym. For clients looking for something more luxurious, if you can imagine it, the company also offers Vivios Europa 1 in a former Cold War-era munitions storage facility in Germany. The structure, which was carved out of solid bedrock, offers 34 private residences, each starting at 2,500 square feet, with the option to add a second story for a total of 5,000 square feet. Vicino compares the individual spaces to underground yachts, and even recommends that owners commission the same builders and designers that worked on their actual vessel, because I think most of them have yachts. The vast complex includes a tram system to transport residents throughout the shelter, where they can visit its restaurants, theater, coffee shops, pool, and game areas. Now, CNN Style is a fluff site that is designed to kill your critical thinker with repetitive shots of mindless entertainment, but that doesn't mean they don't let some valuable intelligence information slip through the cracks once in a while. This billionaire building spree is not being done by just one or two crazy people who came up with a nutty idea to spend lots and lots of money on a luxury bunker just in case, one day, they would need to live underground like a woodchuck. There are lots of people doing this, including most, if not all, of the billionaires, who are a class that's growing by the week. Again, it's kind of like these people know something. It reminds me of Revelation 6, 12-16, where it says, There was a giant earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it was rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place, and the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. This passage is, of course, talking about people fleeing from God's wrath, but it doesn't mean that it's not also talking about an earlier cataclysm that will be triggered by man and not by God. I don't think most of these bunker-building billionaires are too worried about God's wrath, but they sure do seem to be worried about someone's. So either there's some meteorite we haven't been told about heading towards the Earth, or they're really worried about what's going to happen when the common people finally figure out what's really gone down. One thing's certain, millionaires and billionaires don't expend large amounts of their wealth on things that they have no intention of using. It's not as if these bunkers are vacation destinations. Sure, they're nice for bunkers, but they aren't the kind of place you want to bring Granny and the kids for some R&R. Do the billionaires really position their opulent bunkers in remote and desolate locations just because they like the hiking? They're obviously putting as much real estate and obstacles between themselves and something else as they can. And the only something else that makes any sense is people. They want to stay far away from people. They know something's coming, probably because they are planning it. And whatever it turns out to be is likely not going to be real good for the rest of us.
So God, in his wisdom, warned his people through the Bible to watch out for these kinds of deceivers at all times and in all places in order to identify them and their deceitful plans so that we the people won't be bamboozled and victimized. To help the little people, God gave some tips on how to identify the bad people. He said, for example, in Isaiah 59.4, They, the bad people, trust in empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. Trusting in empty words means that they make promises they don't intend to keep because they don't think their dumb victims will figure out the truth until it's too late. Does this sound anything at all like the politicians of today? Really anywhere in the world? In that passage, God connected another thought to the breaking of promises. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. Evil means profound immorality and wickedness, and iniquity means immoral or grossly unjust behavior. When they say, for example, that we will stop people from spreading disinformation on the internet, well, it it sounds like a good thing. I mean, who's for disinformation? But those are empty words. They work tirelessly to stop truth from being disseminated on the internet, while at the same time promoting false information that will ultimately harm people and even kill some. So how can we know which information is true and which is false? Well, our founders figured it out, which is why they made the very First Amendment say that the government can make no law restricting the freedom of speech or the press. The First Amendment is designed to keep the federal government from restricting speech because that's ultimately how we determine the truth. It's true that we just can't instantaneously know what's true and what's not true in a free-for-all debate, and it takes some effort on our part to figure it out, But open debate and civil discussion between people who hold differences of opinions or interpretations is the only way that we can ensure we have access to the truth. We might not recognize truth or know where to find it, and we might not like it when we do find it, but free open debate is the only way to ensure that we can be exposed to the truth. This is why every tyrant, large and small, from the beginning of time has tried to control communications. They need to control the message, so the first thing every tyrant does is to try to shut down free speech. The First Amendment was written as a defense of free speech to keep any would-be despot at bay. And I'm talking about American despots, not foreigners. Unfortunately, the founders didn't experience fascism at its finest, so they couldn't appreciate the power that can be achieved when the free press gleefully conspires with the government to act as its official mouthpiece, and the willingness of the press to do this when government and the corporatists who own the press form a political alliance. It is a corporatocracy conspiracy. The founders erroneously thought that private businesses would be on the people's side for their own self-preservation. They didn't foresee the lustful power that vast wealth could cultivate or how private media and communication conglomerates could work lucratively with politicians to do the dirty work of a dirty government. These private corporations censor speech almost as effectively as the government would, and then they feed personal information about us back to the government so that the government can unleash its enforcement powers on anyone it deems to be a threat. The liars who deceive us say we have free speech when we really don't. They feel no shame or guilt for deceiving us this way because, according to Psalm 10.4, the wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. Shame and guilt are gifts from God that are there to help keep us from doing things we ought not to do or incentivize us not to repeat our mistakes. Liars are so filled with their own pride that they quash both shame and guilt and as a result give no thought at all to God or what's actually for the good. And why should they not be filled with pride when verse 5 says, His ways are always prospering? 
Liars are often financially successful because they mislead and deceive people. Uh, that's called fraud. The verse concludes, Your judgments are far above out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he sneers at them. Since the liars prosper through their evil, they take their prosperity as proof that the real God, Yahweh, does not exist, or that their God, whatever it is, is more powerful than Yahweh is. They have no conscious awareness or concern about the judgment that's building against them because it's above them, out of sight, and out of mind. Instead, they sneer at their enemies, the good people who expect them to do the right thing. You know, us little people. He has said in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. Believing nothing bad will ever happen to them, they just do whatever they want. Doesn't that seem to describe the last couple of years with our corporatists, bureaucrats, and politicians? Verse 7. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. His mouth runs like a powerful, foul, and polluted river. Or as James puts it, See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body. They think that the language they use and the words they speak are just there for descriptors or they are tools to manipulate the world to achieve their short-term objective. They use, for example, the term fact-check to imply that they are concerned with the facts on their platforms and carefully check them. What they really mean is they don't like your facts or your conclusions about facts and want to censor you and keep your facts and opinions out of the public sphere. We know this is true because John Stossel sued Facebook for defamation over a pair of videos that he posted about forest management and the technology that can help us adapt to climate change. If you haven't noticed, the term climate change is a hot-button issue with the world leaders and technology oligarchs, and if you don't use it the way they want you to, uh, you don't get what you want. Uh, we might get into that later at another time. According to a New York Post online article dated 12-14-21 entitled Facebook Admits the Truth, Stossel's Facebook video posts were flagged as false and lacking content by Facebook. That deprived Stossel of both readers and revenue by making him look like a liar. Then Facebook did whatever they do to de-emphasize his video, so on top of that, they did something else. Facebook's response to Stossel in court is summed up in two words. Too bad. They said their fact checks are just opinions that are protected under the First Amendment. They didn't argue that the fact checks were true or how they were true, but just said that they're opinion that's protected. Now, nowhere on their website does it mention that their fact checks are just opinions that may be backed by no facts at all and that it's protected free speech. I guess it wouldn't achieve the same results, and liars, if anything, are results-driven. But words matter, even words on the internet, and lying words are not forgotten by God. Jesus made this point in one of his many confrontations with the world of his day in which he associated the mouth with the heart the very center of our personality, the generator of our most cherished values, and the source of our personal will is our heart. In Matthew 12, 34-37, he said to his favorite moral punching bag, the Pharisees, For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth evil things. But I say to you, that for every idle word men speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. That word translated idle in English is the Greek argos, which has the connotation of laziness, of not doing what should be done. 
If our language hurts another person or offends God, we will be held accountable for it, regardless of whether it's done with malicious intent or just lazy inattention to our words. That's how personally involved with our lives God gets. But the evil person gives no consideration at all to God, but lots of consideration to his plots and schemes. It says in Psalm 10.8, He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the secret places, he murders the innocent. I think God wrote this verse with Planned Parenthood in mind. So these are the kinds of people who populate the world, that organize social, political, military, and economic systems that exist to advance the agenda of Satan. Anyone who is a member of the world works for and advances the agenda of Satan, whether they know it or not. They are naturally attracted to other members of the world while being naturally repulsed by Christians. They can be identified by their attraction to and love of material things, or their hatred even of the idea of one true God, or their desire to self-gratify themselves physically, materially, and spiritually, or their lying, misuse of language to achieve a desirable end, or their proud hatred of anyone they label an enemy. At the end of Romans 1, Paul did a great job summarizing the characteristics of worldly people. Worldliness really gets going when someone abandons God, who releases him to follow his natural inclinations. Few worldly people exhibit all of the following characteristics, but all of them exhibit at least one of them. Romans 1.28-32 says, Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, often in thought, but sometimes indeed, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, we might say gossips, backbiters or backstabbers, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, who represent righteous authority, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Now that last statement is chilling. Evil people actively approve of people who practice the same evils they practice. It is a system, and it rewards its members for doing evil, even when the evil seems so minor, like fake fact-checking videos the rulers don't like, or telling women who are considering having an abortion how brave they are. Viva la women's health care! The people who approve of this detestable Moloch-worshipping child sacrifice just love to gather supporters around them and champion their collective bravery to end the life of a baby. Have you ever listened to the Project Veritas recording of Planned Parenthood officials and their corporate supporters talking casually about buying and selling baby parts for research? These are baby body parts, like hearts, kidneys, livers, and lungs, all of which have to be harvested from living babies who have not received any anesthesia because the anesthetic might harm the parts they want to harvest. And they talk casually about how each part is worth this and how much they'll pay for that. It's too disturbing to play on this podcast, but I encourage you to go explore for yourself who these evil people really are, and by extension, everyone who supports them. What did Paul say? They not only do the same, but they approve of those who practice the same thing. Who practices this kind of evil? People whose hearts have been aligned with the will of Satan, although most of them have no idea that their hearts are aligned with Satan, much less how they got that way. 
The primary objective of Satan is to corrupt and ultimately destroy everything that's important to God, but most importantly, the people that God created in his own image. What better place to start than when they are just being formed? The spirit army of Satan prowls about like a hungry lion looking for someone to destroy, 1 Peter 5.8, and it destroys by besieging and overcoming the hearts and minds of people. The first example of this was in the Garden of Eden when Satan planted a thought in the mind of Eve which led her to rebel against God. Satan tempts our minds in order to influence our hearts. After influencing Eve's mind and tempting her heart with a prize, her will moved alongside Satan to consummate the deal through an action, a simple act of defiance against God. Having reoriented her heart and mind, it was nothing to literally carry the new plan over to Adam and induce him to reorient his heart as well. They not only do the things they know are deserving of death, but they approve of those who also practice them. So the Bible warns us to guard our hearts and minds, the heart because it's the center of our emotion and will, and the mind because it's the avenue of reason through which the heart can be influenced. Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. And Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. When we don't guard our heart and discipline our mind, we become susceptible to Satan's schemes. Because there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Proverbs 14.12 There are actually many ways that seem right to us, like baby killing, but those ways will inevitably lead to ultimate death if we do not repent and turn from them. Anyone who works for Satan is headed towards that second death. Satan tries to induce everyone to join his organization willingly, but not everybody's willing. Some are. Well, actually, a lot are. In, in fact, a distressingly large number, but certainly not the majority. The average person has to be deceived into working for Satan, and that's done by getting people to believe things that are not true. In John chapter 8, Jesus had a confrontation with the scribes and Pharisees of ancient Israel. The scribes being the experts in biblical law, the lawyers of their day, and the Pharisees were the expert practitioners of the law. They liked to make a big show of following the law so they could impress the people and gain their approval. These two groups were the intellectual giants of their day, the equivalent of our university leaders who have all the letters after their names. The argument began when the Pharisees accused Jesus of testifying for himself when he explained who he really was, which he only did because they asked. He essentially said that he was the Messiah who was prophesied about in the Old Testament, the Messiah being a person who would be sent by God to rule over Israel as king. In the scriptural laws, a person who wanted to make a legal claim, like being an unknown king, required the corroborating testimony of two or three reliable individuals. Because Jesus had been publicly testifying to the crowd on that day that he was their long-awaited Messiah, the Pharisees accused him of violating this particular law of God. Jesus tried to explain to them that he had the authority to testify on his own behalf because he came from God and therefore he knew God's will. But that just further enraged the Pharisees. In their heart, they felt Jesus, the man, was butting up against the blasphemy laws by almost equating himself with God. So in John 8.25, they bluntly asked the pertinent question, who are you? I think they probably asked it sarcastically, as if to say, just who do you think you are? So Jesus told them who he was by using the term the Son of Man. Now that term was an unmistakable messianic reference that the scribes and Pharisees fully understood. He got it from the book of Daniel, where Daniel described a vision he had received from God. Daniel said, there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. 
The clouds are the Shekinah glory of God, the physical manifestation of God on the earth. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Daniel 7, 13-14 By using this title, Jesus not only claimed the title of Messiah, but he basically said that he was God. After all, only God can be legitimately worshipped, and the scribes and Pharisees knew that. Scribes and Pharisees should have known that the Messiah was going to be God because it is kind of hard to interpret Daniel in any other way. But Satan blinded their minds to this fact so that they would fix their hatred and anger on the man Jesus and not so much on the logic of biblical revelation. As if to illustrate this point, Jesus told the scribes, Pharisees, and all the bystanders who are watching the spectacle that he could set free anyone who believed in him. Hearing, but not listening, the Pharisees interpreted this statement to mean that they were in some kind of physical bondage. They said, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say we will be made free? Rather than think about what Jesus was saying, they pulled out their strongest card, the race card, proudly proclaiming that they were descendants of Abraham, who have never been in political bondage to anyone. Political bondage or slavery was common in those days, and slaves were considered to be very low and very humiliated people, something the scribes and Pharisees most definitely were not, at least in their minds. In response, Jesus said, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. Verses 37 to 38. Now, I'm pretty sure that the scribes and Pharisees did not have a face-to-face meeting with Satan, so Jesus was talking about something else. He was talking about their hearts and minds being aligned with Satan's will. They did what Satan wanted them to do because their spiritual components were susceptible to Satan's influence. So not only did Jesus directly affirm the existence of Satan as a real and powerful entity, he actually connected human behavior to Satanic influence. Still blind to what Jesus was telling them, the Pharisees replied, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Satan twisted and perverted the Pharisees' interpretations of biblical instruction, and through those twisted interpretations, he affected their actions. The same thing is going on today, especially with our political and oligarchical leaders. They don't follow God, and so they don't anchor their thoughts and minds to God in the Bible, which is the only protection we have from satanic influence. Romans 12.2 says, Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Testing through the Bible doesn't mean testing what man thinks is right. It means testing against what God says is right. And that's the mistake too many people these days make. They want to test by man's evaluation of what truth is rather than God's. Now, God renews the mind through the work of Jesus, which we obtain through faith in who he is and by making a decision to follow him. We can get faith when we hear about God and Jesus through the Bible. As it says in Romans 10, 17, So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Well, didn't the Pharisees have the scriptures too? Well, yes, and they knew them forward and backward. So there's another element at play, which is one of Satan's favorites. People love to change what the Bible means by selecting certain scriptures that advance their agenda, which is usually tied to Satan's agenda one way or the other. 
The scribes and Pharisees selected scriptural passages that advanced their interpretation of God in Jewish society so that they could obtain power, privilege, and wealth, and they disregarded or spiritualized away passages that conflicted with those agendas. But every scripture is important, and we can't pick and choose which ones we want to accept and which ones we want to discard. I believe that's one reason why Jesus told us about his confrontation with Satan at the start of his ministry in Matthew chapter 4. In response to Satan's quoting of scripture, Jesus repeatedly told him, It is written, or it's also written. Satan knows scripture better than most people, and he used that knowledge to formulate temptations that if acted upon by Jesus would have derailed God's plan of redemption. But Jesus gave us the antidote to that kind of manipulation. If an interpretation of scripture conflicts with another scripture, then the interpretation cannot be correct, because God wrote all the scriptures, and there's no conflict between them. Conflicting facts don't exist in reality, so conflicting parts of the Bible would demonstrate a mistake, and God does not make mistakes. Why do I cite so many scriptures in this podcast? Because scripture is the immovable standard of truth against which we can discern the lies, manipulations, and distortions of the satanic kingdom whether disseminated through spirit or through human beings. God gave us a mind to discern the truth, and I'm doing this podcast to spread it. God's truth, not mine. So what do we do about all this deception? How do we recognize it? How do we fight it? Should we storm the Capitol again or clog up bridges and highways? What about taking up arms? If it was good enough for George Washington, it's good enough for us, right? These are good questions to talk about, but let's start with ourselves. I like to analogize this little war between God and Satan with a game of soccer, or for those in other countries, a football match. Almost everybody knows a little bit about soccer. There are two teams, and they try to put the ball in each other's net. Very simple. So in this analogy, God's team is blue, going from left to right, and Satan's team is red, going from right to left. You know, blue like water and red like fire. The team match might be titled something like the elect versus the world, you know, the names of the teams. One team's jersey sports a cross, and the other a pyramid with an eye in it. So God is up in the owner's booth, and Satan and Jesus are down on the field coaching. Now, Satan is clever, so he disguises some of his players with blue jerseys. They look like they belong on God's team, but every time they get the ball, they go the wrong way, or they pass to the wrong team. They talk like blue players. They hang out with blue players. They even pat the blue players on the back when they score, but they belong to Satan's team and they know it. But the blue players don't know it, and some of them get to be pretty comfortable with these disguised red players. One of the younger blue players asked one of the disguised red players for some tips on how to play. So at a break, they go over to the sideline to look at something in the playbook. The disguised player opens the book and points to a page. See, he asks, it says right here to love your enemies and do good to them. I told you we should be passing to the red team. Well, that sounds right, said the blue player, who then goes on to help the red team score. At the end of the game, God comes down and separates the two teams, the winners on the right and the losers on the left. The deceived blue player is put over with the red team and at first is confused and then hurt and finally indignant. Hey, he cries, I'm on that team over there. God says, you can tell a player by his fruits and you kept helping the red team. That makes you a red player. You cannot, said Jesus, serve mammon and God. Mammon can be thought of as the world. We cannot keep doing things that serve Satan and legitimately think that we're working for God no matter what color jersey we put on. It isn't the jersey that makes the player. We can call ourselves anything we want, decorate our souls any way we want, but God judges the hearts and the minds, not the decorations. 
God judges based on who we demonstrate we are. Remember what Jesus told his team? For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what's good, and the evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what's evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Luke 6, 44-45 If you know someone's a liar, that person is of the world. If you know someone who entertains delusions, that person is of the world. If you know someone who promotes baby sacrifice at abortion clinics, that person is of the world. If you know someone who wants to cancel you, or keep you from communicating information to others, or even prevent you from having spirited disagreements with others, that person is of the world. If you know someone who finds the opinions of men more persuasive than the commandments of God, that person is of the world. So, how did Jesus end that little discussion we just heard? He said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house, who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when the flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. When the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. Luke 6, 46-49 Those who do what Jesus commands are his followers playing on his team. Those who hear his commandments and do otherwise are playing for Satan's team, no matter what color jersey they wear. What are his commandments? Well, they're everything that God demands of us in the entire Bible, because Jesus is God. The first commandment is love God. Agape. Do what's in God's best interest, and do it with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I guess that means put God first in everything. Second, love your neighbor, agape again. Do what's in your neighbor's best interest, not what he thinks is in his best interest, not what makes him feel good, but what's in his actual best interest based on what's in God's best interest. Third, abstain from sin. Sin is everything that opposes God and degrades or corrupts or perverts his creation. There's sexual sin. God made them man and woman, bimodal. Everything else is what we want and it opposes God. It's sin. Do you want to have sex? Then get married. God commanded it, not me. Two people committed for life to something greater than themselves. The marriage covenant is supposed to be a model of the relationship God, or Jesus, has with his people. Sacrificial sin, baby killing, is of the world. Exodus 20.13, you shall not murder. But I didn't murder a baby, it's just a bunch of cells. Well, Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. How does God do either of these things if we're not a person before we're born? The word new means to have a close personal relationship, and God does not have a relationship with a group of cells. He doesn't consecrate a group of cells or a potential of a human being. He consecrates a human being in the womb. Psalm 139.13 confirms it. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Me, not something that preceded me. Me being a human being. Satan destroys that which God creates. And that's just kind of what he does. 
when a human being does that to another innocent human being, it's called murder, and there's just no way around that. Do you support organizations that support baby killing? Well, then stop. We're commanded to come out of the world, not be yoked to it. Yet we have to exist within the world in order to do our job. So how do we fight the world? Well, the Bible tells us how, and it's really very simple at one level. All you need to do is look like a Christian, act like a Christian, and invite strangers and enemies to become a Christian. Support your brothers and sisters in Christ because Jesus told us to do that. Give alms, and that means donations and things, but know that alms don't save. Only Christ saves, so alms should be used as a means to a greater end, not an end in themselves. If you do these things, you will be much further along the path of sanctification than most people who like to wear blue jerseys. Just get ready, because the more of the world that you see, or the more of the world you recognize, the more you're going to have to give it up. Fortunately, God wants you to fill that newly vacated heart space with something else. Something that should give you much more purpose and satisfaction than all the things it replaces. And we'll get more into that next week. Until then, if you found this podcast the least bit interesting, useful, or important, or possibly even entertaining, please recommend it to someone you know who might benefit by it, or recommend it to someone who won't benefit by it. Maybe they'll just have their day ruined with a truth. Oh, that would be too bad. Give it a thumbs up or a happy face or whatever else your app has to encourage others to listen. This is not a commercial enterprise and I'm not a professional podcaster. I'm just one small and unlikely person doing what I can to bring a sliver of light into the deep darkness of the world. There's not much budget for this podcast, so it's limited to what I can invest both in time and money, which is why it doesn't get posted as regularly as I'd like. Hopefully, God will drag me along so I can keep posting this podcast on some sort of schedule, more or less. Please pray to that end. Pray also, if not primarily, that the podcast benefits listeners spiritually. Underground Christian can be heard on several fine platforms, including Podbean, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, TuneIn, iHeart, Player FM, Listen Notes, and Pandora. I'm going to try to post it to BitChute too, but all that video editing is really time-consuming. Uh, you know, BitChute is, an audio, is a video platform. You can put audio up there, but people kind of really like the video with it, and it's just hard to do it. So we'll have to see how much time I can come up with in order to invest in that. To find Underground Christian, look for the bright green icon, like you're walking through a forest of God's beautiful green trees. Well, the color is not exactly like green trees, but you get the picture. If you wish to contact me, please send an email to undergroundchristian at outlook.com. That's one word, Underground Christian. I will respond eventually. If you wish to help with the podcast, maybe in material presentation, research, or website development, please let me know in an email. If you want to hear me interview somebody, I haven't done that before, but hey, I'm always up for it. Just let me know who. Until next time, keep your eyes up, your head down, and prepare to do the work of God. But if you really can't stand God, just get a little humble and ask him privately to change your heart so you can join the right team. Legitimately. But you've got to ask, because that's the only way you'll be allowed on the team. When you join the team, in addition to getting a new family made up of really cool people, for a limited time only, every new team member will also get a promissory note, good for one eternal life with God, the one who created everything and is really, really smart, not to mention loving. Isn't that much better than being incarcerated with Satan for all of eternity over a few temporary thrills? <laughs> <laughs>